I mean, you put your mind to it and you want it bad enough. And I, I mean, I, I swim because I, I love it. I love swimming. It means like the world to me. I have a tattoo on my side of, um, an ocean. It has a wave on it and it actually has the coordinate points of, um, my mom who we lost in 2012. So anytime I'm out there swimming in the ocean, I just say like, I'm with her. So I was like, this is just 12 hours with your mom. You haven't, you know, had that in eight years. Just go out and enjoy it. And I, I battled from the beginning of that event. And I think if it didn't, if it wasn't so hard, I don't think I would have held it so close to me because I, it was hard the entire time. But once you finally get there and you're like, you did it, like you did it. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess. I'm your host, and I'm here with Coach BJ at Play Try Oceanside. We are in front of a live audience. <laughs> and we are here in celebration of our friend, our fellow athlete, and Ironman race director, Sabrina Houston, who just last weekend completed the Catalina Channel Crossing. This is one of the Ocean's Seven, a list of seven channel swims around the world that represent some of the most daunting challenges on the planet. Sabrina, massive congratulations, and thank you so much for allowing us to smack down this experience with you. We are, we are so proud, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys all for being here too. I was looking at a post from the, I think it was the Catalina Channel Crossing Swim Federation, and they had posted about you and you replied, you know, in gratitude about being able to, to fulfill a lifetime goal. So let's go back to when this came into your awareness and when did it become a goal? Yeah, so I've um, grew up in San Diego, Oceanside, California, and it's a really big swim community. I started swimming when I was really young, and I always uh, grew up, you know, swimming and being in the water and being in the ocean and living so close to the beach. And people would always be talking about swimming and um, just a huge part of my life. And I remember one day somebody said, oh, you know, people swim from Catalina. And I was like, I was young. I was like 10. I was like, no, they don't. You barely swim across the pool. Um, but it always stuck with me. And I swam through um, competitive when I was little and then again through high school, but really as a sprinter and even just swimming, you know, fast 50s and 100s, it always just really stuck with me. And it was kind of in the back of my mind. And then I got into triathlon in college and uh, you start swimming, you know, miles and two miles. And I was like, you know, maybe... Maybe one day I'll actually do that Catalina crossing. And then I finally in last year was just like, you just need to sign up, tell the world that you're going to do it and then apply and see if you get accepted. And if you do, then, well, you might as well just do it. So, yeah, it's always it's been there ever since I was really little. I would say it's one of the things you came here to do for sure. So how does one even go about what do, you, what do you need to qualify? Yeah. Because two miles in the pool is a lot different than what you swam, which was 20. What was the final distance on it? 22.7 with currents and everything like that. Yeah. So how do you even get yourself up to par to be accepted for something like that? Yeah. So I learned a lot in the marathon swimming world. This is my first take on marathon swimming, my first channel swim. So it was completely new. I felt like I was just entering triathlon again for the first time. Um, there's usually a governing body that uh, overlooks every single channel that swimmers kind of the, ocean, the big seven. And so you this federation looks over the channel and gives the athletes or the swimmers the permit essentially to swim in the channel. So the Catalina channel is a shipping lane. Um, and so what the Federation does is they monitor that area and work with the Coast Guards and make sure that the ships aren't there when you need to be there and essentially give you a permit uh, that allows you to swim during your allotted time. And so there can only be a certain amount of permits per year because it's an active shipping lane. And so you apply and you um, write up, I think it's about a seven, seven or 10 page application that's pretty intensive. They make you get a full medical release form. Um, you have to sign a very hefty waiver. They also make you um, put down all of your application swims. So swims that you've done in the past, um, your times with the results on them. Uh, and then they call you and give you an interview. They also make you also look over a checklist of who's going to be your, you know, ch crew chief, who's your coach, how many pace swimmers are you going to have? They want to know your cadence. 
They want to know so much about you just to be potentially accepted. So it's a, a really big process to even be granted the opportunity to be able to do the crossing. And prior to applying, what was the longest swim race that you had done? So I did Trans Tahoe unofficially just with me and a couple of buddies from um, UC Davis, but that one was unrecorded, so I couldn't really put that on there. So the longest swim I had technically done recorded was a 2.4 mile, and I think I put like Ironman Santa Rosa on there, and I did a Ironman... What else did I do? Cabo on there, and then as well as Kona on there, and a couple other fun swims, but, yeah. What about the crew section? When you had to write down your crew, did you already have this formulated in your mind of who your support system would be? I had the... The, the big key players that they ask for. So they ask your crew chief, who um, was my husband, Matt. Then they also asked um, co- your coach. And I had a couple of coaches that were helping me at the time. Um, my, my big one that I put on there was Rendy, who had actually done the triple, tr- triple crown, which is Catalina, English Channel, and Manhattan Beach. And she had held the record for a really long time. So she was very known in the marathon swimming world. So when I put her down as a coach, um, I kind of gave a little bit of validity to the fact that she would kind of sponsor me and be my mentor. So that was a really big one. They also wanted to know medical-wise, who was I going to have on there being my medical support. Um, I had an ICU nurse. Her name's Allie. um, So she was really good, you know, somebody that was dealing with people who are, you know, in traumatic situations, she had a a really good finger on the pulse for that. So then the other ones were kind of pace swimmers and those are optional. So I just phoned a couple friends and said, Hey, I'm thinking about doing the swim. Would you be maybe open to it next August? And they're like, yeah, just put down my name and we'll see what we're doing. And I was like, okay. And then I just sent in my application and they called me about a week later and it was like the scariest phone call I've ever gotten. Why was it so scary? Yeah, why was it so scary? The anticipation? Oh, yeah. And then I also have to mention, um, when I put down um, my the application, I also put my coach, uh, Dea, who helped me train for Cabo and then as well as Kona. And so that was also another just, you know, another really good person to have on my resume to kind of vet as like, yes, yeah, she's a passionate athlete. She can do it. But the application, uh, when they called me, this man named Dave called me, and he's like, oh, I'm, you know, from the Catalina Crossing Federation. I want to talk to you about your resume. And I said, oh, okay, absolutely. Th- you know, thank you for calling. I'm a very kind of cheery person. And he's like, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm really, you know, kind of worried about your application. You don't have a lot of long cold water swims. And I said, well, you know, I've, I've done Tahoe. It's not on there but because um, it's unofficial, but I, I have done it. I swam the 11 miles. Um, and I'm like, training right now. It's a little bit cold. It's early April. You know, he's like, yeah, but you're doing a lot of pool swims. And I was like, yeah, no, I did four and a half hours in the pool last week. And I'm going to switch to open water soon. He's like, I'm just a little bit concerned about your lack of cold water training. And so I just need to know that you're serious about this because I don't want you being in trouble out there. And I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. He's like, if you get in trouble out there, you're, you're going to be in trouble out there for a while. And I was like, okay, you're right. So he's just like, you just need to really make sure that this is something that you want to do. He's like, we get a ton of applications, people who are, you know, interested that just kind of see it and they want to do it and they're not qualified. And that's why we're here to kind of vet those people and make sure that they don't, you know, give, we give them the permit and then they go out there and they're in trouble. And now the Coast Guard has to come and, you know, rescue them. And you're looking at a big situation. So this conversation, was this April of this year? Correct, yes. So, so you're, you're already acting as if. You're already assuming the identity of a Catalina Channel Crossing swimmer because you're doing yes. the long distance in the pool. You've already got a plan to go to the, um, to the open water. And really, when you look at your application, like 2.4-mile swim as your longest swim, like, the odds were kind of stacked against you, I think. W- would you say? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I knew that going in. I was like, okay, I have, you know, 2.4 miles. I had one Gator Man, which I think is a three mile. But yeah, no, I came in with a very kind of weak uh, application as far as the marathon swimming is concerned. A lot of people already have, you know, a, a 10 mile swim or, you know, something kind of recorded on there. But I was, I was like kind of a dark horse in that. So from that conversation, when did you get the go ahead? Uh, about three days later. So it's a very different kind of application in the fact that they make you get your boat beforehand, which is, you know, you have to put a thousand dollar deposit on the boat. And I was like, non, non-refundable. So I'm like, I really hope I get this. 
Um, and then you have to go see the doctor and have them sign off on that. And I was already three and a half, four months into training. So I was going to be devastated if I had already put in four months worth of work to just potentially be like, hey, you're not, you're not strong enough to do it. But it's, it's a risk that I wanted to take. And I was like, you know, if it's not going to happen this year, at least I'll use this whole season to really build my resume and try it, try it for 2020. The all in, right? This, this is your all in. You're already acting as if you're, you're going to do this race. Was, was there any inkling or any thought in your mind of a backup plan? So if this doesn't go through, I'm going to do a different race. Or was this like everything was going into this race? Everything. I was training. My whole training plan was scheduled for Catalina. Um, that was, it was going to be all of this. Or if I didn't, then I was going to maybe take a little bit of a break, look what other swims were around the country and just try to build my, my resume to get the application for 2020. I, I think that's... I mean, that's the, the belief that we, we are, we are all in, like you have to be all in for this thing and having that backup plan. And that's the reason why I ask it is because it sort of gives you that out, that comfort, like, okay, if I don't get it, then at least I have this. But if you're all in, you're telling the universe, Hey, like, listen up, I'm ready for this thing. So when they called you, did you have any, so through that conversation, did you have any hesitation that you were not capable enough? Anything in, in your mind? In my heart and you know, I knew I could do it. I was like, if I put my mind and my body behind it and I want it bad enough, I could do it. And Matt, my husband and I have had conversations when I first came to him. I was like, I think I want to do the Catalina Crossing. Matt's like, you could do it tomorrow. And I was like, what do you mean I could do it tomorrow? And he's just like, you could do it tomorrow. I'm not even worried about it. Um, and I just conveyed that to them when I talked to them over the phone. I was like, I wholeheartedly believe that I can do this just like I believed I could do an Ironman when I stepped up at Cabo and I was like I this is it this is what I was meant to do I just would love an opportunity to be able to show the world that I could do it throughout your whole life has this been the pattern always seeing something going after it without hesitation <laughs> Matt shaking his head yes and smiling a hundred percent yeah if I wanted to go and and do it just mentally if I'm a hundred percent with it then I'm just gonna go and give it my hundred percent and if it's good enough great if it's not good enough then I still gave it a hundred percent and I can walk away happy and whatever the outcome would be and just for the record, I saw from one of the officials that they had posted that you had a very impressive first showing for this marathon swim, both physically and mentally. So it seems like they were pretty impressed with you. You were the right choice. But I don't think anybody had any other choice than to accept you because this has been in your life for so long. Like you were supposed to do this. Yeah, no, I, I think once I talked to them on the phone and, you know, talked about how passionate I was and how badly I really wanted this and to represent marathon swimming and to kind of be that person to just get into it. It's very kind of secretive kind of group that kind of are just like, you know, under the radar, these people that swim these crazy distances, there's no glory in it. There's no finish line or medal or anything like that. They just do it for the love of the sport. And I just was like, I want to I want to do that too. Like swimming is what I was born to do. I just want to swim. So in your prep, were you using any techniques of like visualization or um, feeling like the water that you were swimming in was that deep Pacific that you would be swimming in? Yeah, I would, I would lay in bed at night and just think about the whole plan all the way from packing my bags to packing my nutrition to getting on the boat to how the boat ride over there was going to be. And I would just go over it and over it and over it until I just felt like I was just reliving. Like the day of the race was just a movie that I had already seen a thousand times. Well, 100%. So what you did there was you just programmed your subconscious. And so that's why visualization works so well. And when you add that, when you add feeling, like practice how it's going to feel to that visualization, you just take it to a whole new level so that when you showed up that night, the, the subconscious mind was like, oh yeah, I've already done this. I've already done this. So let's um, talk about your physical training. What oh man, what, where do we go? Like, what was the biggest week? Let's go there. Yeah, so marathon training was very different in the fact that I, I come from an, a triathlon Ironman background. And for that, it's, you know, 20 hours a week. So I'm, I'm used to the big, you know, hours things. But what I really underestimate about swimming was how long it takes you to recover. I was initially on a, you know, three-week build cycle, one-week recover, but then 
three months in, I was realizing that I was just so deeply fatigued from these long swims that I couldn't keep that up. So then I started doing two weeks build, one week recovery, um, and then my body was responding a lot better to that. Um, it was it was a tired that I can't even describe. You can't even like wake up in the morning. Your body's just so exhausted. Um, so the longest week I had was about, I'd say 20 hours or so. And I want to say my longest swim was seven and a half hours. So I think that was roughly 15 miles. And I had swam five days during that week, averaging between 3000 yards and 5000 yards. So I think that whole week probably had like, I don't really know, probably like 40,000 or 50,000 yards in it. Did you ever have trouble like keeping up on calories just in your training week? So of course you're going to need calories, but I mean, right? We've all come home from the pool and we're like, where's the fridge? Because there's something about swimming that makes you so hungry. So were you having trouble keeping up with just calorie intake during your training? Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with calories. And when I saw the doctor um, to get my physical, one of the questions she asked me was why. Um, but then she she realized that she wasn't going to understand the why, and that's okay. Um, and then another thing was she was like, I we need you to probably gain about five pounds or 10 pounds to be able to withstand the, the cold temperatures. And, and we're not talking, you know, frigid temperatures here, but we're talking about you know, mid 60s to high 60s uh, being submerged for 12 hours. So the more body fat you can have on there, since it's a non-wetsuit swim, the better off for you. And I had the darndest time trying to gain weight. I was on um, meal replacement shakes, trying to gain calories. I would eat ice cream sandwiches. We would go to the store and look at just anything that had the highest calories to eat. Um, and I would just eat, I would just eat until I was nauseous and then I would stop and take a break and then try to eat again. But just constantly just trying to eat food and I'm, I'm a vegetarian. And so that also just included a lot of fiber. And so I really had to just be mindful of just what filled me up wasn't also just backing me up. So I had a very fine line. What was the most out of the box food that you were having? So out of the box, meaning out of your vegetarian, um, standard, you know, meal plan that you would have every day outside of training. Like what was the craziest thing you had to eat? Matt, what do you think? Craziest thing I had to eat. You and Matt had to eat. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I just, I would just, it was, yeah. So honestly, I think the biggest struggle throughout the whole training block wasn't the training. It wasn't the, it was the, we would get in like legitimate arguments about how she needed to eat more because she's, you know, for those of you that know Sabrina, no, she's, she's not exactly the, the, the biggest person of all time. She's, she's quite lean and has always struggled. She's one of those people that I hate passionately that when she doesn't work out, she actually loses weight. I, I truly don't understand how this is possible. So I think the biggest thing wasn't so much what she was eating, but, but quite literally forcing quantity upon her that she was, that she just didn't want to do. I think that was probably the toughest part about the whole nutrition thing. Other than that, I mean, we didn't really eat any weird things or anything crazy. Um, other than just a, a, like keeping insure in business, like that was pretty much it. People so. would people would ask me, they're like, "Oh, you know, you can buy um, it in bulk quantity if you want, if your parents need that." I'm like, mm-hmm, "No, I'm just this is." <laughs> I think I used to have the insure the bottles, right? The, yeah, the, the, and the plus, so it's like 360 calories. I mean, I would eat, I would drink two or three of those a day. And is the liquid was a liquid a lot more easily to keep down than actual food. It was yeah. the, the physical, just biting the food and eating it and swallow it. I mean, Matt, you know, made light of it, but we would literally, I'd literally have to count, okay, 10 more bites. You can just eat 10 more bites, please. Just, I mean, you just eat so much food that your body's like, please do not make me take another bite. Nothing is tasting good. All of my taste buds are out of whack because of the salt water. Everything tastes really gross. Please don't make me eat another bite. Yeah, it was a really hard battle every day to try to keep weight on and swimming. So when, um, when it got to the event, where were you with your weight? Were you at the place you wanted to be or? I was the same weight. <laughs> I gained zero weight. <laughs> I, no, I did not gain a single pound. I gained, um, some muscle mass, but then I also lost muscle in my legs because I didn't, wasn't really using them. So all in all, I think I came in like a pound under when I went to the, do- like the doctor. So you win was- some, you lose some. <laughs> Where were you with your relationship 
with the coldness because everyone's telling you you need to put weight on so you can survive the cold. Then you've got that guy from the phone call in your head saying, if you get in trouble, you're going to be in trouble. Where were you mentally with like, I'm not gaining any weight? Yeah, I hit a couple of really frustrating parts midway through. And um, Matt and I had some couple really big training uh, swims that I one of them I didn't complete. I got pulled because I was hypothermic. And I think that was a really big eye opener, just really failing at that workout. I had a six and a half hour swim ending at about 11 PM at night and got all the way to, I think hour six. And, um, my body just started getting so cold. I couldn't even swim. I mean, I'm talking shaking. My muscles hurt from being so tight from the cold. And my medical lead asked me to swim over and I swam over and she took my pulse and it was like below 60. And she's like, your capillary refill is way high or way lower than it should be. And we're going to have to pull you for this. I'm, I'm sorry. And I just, I mean, I went home and I just cried. I just sobbed to Matt. If I can't complete a six and a half hour swim, eight weeks from Catalina, how am I going to do it on race day when the conditions are going to be like this, but only six more hours? So how'd you shake that off? I got really mad. I was just like, the little voice inside of me is like, you can do this and I know you can do this, but you're letting this win and you're not taking every single step that you can to, you know, be successful in that. And so I went to Dea, who's my strength and conditioning coach. And I said, I need, I think I need a little bit more muscle because muscle is going to generate a little bit more heat. So I need to get a little bit stronger because right now I don't feel as strong. I feel a little weak. And I also need to um, up my calories no matter what, you know, how hard that's going to be for me. I need to just mentally get over it and just realize that this is what I need to do. This is how many calories I need to eat. And then the last thing was I need to take cold showers. Like, that's it. No more warm showers. And from, uh, I think, about three months out, I didn't take warm showers. And I was just like, you just need to get used to being in the cold. And that's just what it's going to be. And you need to befriend this and learn how to deal with it because it's an element that's going to be there present on race day and you can't avoid it any longer. So that's... So what were some of the techniques that you used in, like, the cold showers to be able to stand there and take it? I just told myself it's going to be worse on race day. I promise it's going to be worse on the Catalina crossing. I promise <laughs> that's uh, that's one approach. <laughs> I, uh, I would also lay in bed and try to psych myself up. I'm like, it's five minutes. You can do anything for five minutes. You can stand in a cold shower for five minutes. You're going to do great. You're going to wash your hair so fast. And then you're going to feel so much better when that cold shower is done. And I would just constantly just, it got easier over time. But then I also was talking to Matt and he's like, it's not getting easier. You're just getting used to it. And that's a small victory. And you need to really be excited about that. So when you look back now at that workout that you failed at, is there any part of you that looks back at it as a gift that got you shifting into this acclimation? Defining moment. If I don't think if I would have failed at that workout, I don't think I would have done as well at the crossing because quite frankly, I needed to realize that this was a very hard day, both physically and mentally. And I needed to really take it seriously. So we talked about nutrition, you know, before and after what's going on during your, what's going on during your, your practice swims, (laughs) you're laughing. (laughs) How are you getting calories in during training for nutrition went a lot better than race or the crossing nutrition, but I'll touch on what I was training for. So because I was having issues gaining weight, I was having to take in calories a lot faster than most marathon swimmers. Most people are taking in calories every 30 or so minutes. I was really only able to withstand about 15 minutes before I needed to refuel. Um, And so that, you know, in order to refuel, it slows you way down. So I was trying to keep about I don't know, I'm trying to swim in the 130s is a very comfortable pace for me for long distance. Um, and then when you stop, you get into like kind of the 140s, which was still okay, but that added up over time really makes you stay longer in the water. So I was like, I really want to stay in the water at least as amount as possible because of the cold. So I'm just going to try to feed more regularly, but learn how to do it faster. So I did, um, I would do a combination of Roctane and then gels. And then I would also do apple juice and waffles. Um, and so I would just kind of every 15 minutes I would do Roctane and then another 15 minutes I take a gel, then another 15 minutes I take Roctane and then on the hour I would take solid food. And what really became good for me was applesauce. It was easy to go down. I didn't have to chew it. 
the waffles were a little bit harder. I tried to um, uh, soak them in water and made them a little bit more palatable, um, but they were still very, I know, not the best. Um, I also tried oatmeal, which was, which was good, but after a while, it's just so full filling. I was just like, this isn't going to work for me. Um, but really, apple juice came in the most as far as training was concerned. I, I fed from the kayak. And I'm thinking, and you were doing this, so this sounds like you were doing it in the ocean. So you've got that salt water right. kind of taste in your mouth. What were you doing in the pool? Because you were still doing some long swims in the pool, correct? Yeah, I started, um, so I started training in late January, early February. And so from February, really all the way to about mid-April, I was in the pool. So doing, you know, four hours, four and a half hours in the pool, um, nonstop. And I would do a lot of it without flip turns because I was realizing, after that many hours of flip turns, no matter what I did as far as anti-nausea, you know, wearing swim bands or taking anything, it was just too much of a rotation for me to feel better. So I would just do the same nutrition I was planning on race day and just kind of plop it up on the pool deck. And I would just stop, get it from the pool deck, still treading water because you can't touch anything, take my nutrition and then just go on my merry way. So let's start to move into the actual event. Can you fill people in on what the rules are? Yeah, so every, um, there's marathon swimming itself has a couple of very common rules in it. And one of them is, uh, let's see, no wetsuit. So you're not allowed to wear a wetsuit for any open water swim. Um, nothing that's able to give you buoyancy. So no, like, um, you know, neoprene, you can't use a pool buoy, you can't use a snorkel, any sort of aid is not allowed. Um, you're also not allowed to touch anything or anyone during the crossing. So you can't touch uh, the boat or the kayak. Um, when you're taking feedings, you can't touch the person. You just have to grab your nutrition. Another big rule is um, your pace swimmers cannot go in front of you. So you are allowed pace swimmers. Um, you cannot have a pace swimmer the first hour or the last hour. Um, and then you can have them intermittently in the swim, one hour on, one hour off. Um, and they're more like, I, caught, I really should have named them swim buddies because they weren't really pacing me. They were more just there with some other person in the water. So I didn't feel like I was floating in the Pacific Ocean, just me and myself. So just having somebody there was kind of just a really nice thing. And they would, you know, say nice things to you during it. You're doing really good. You're looking strong. It's all lies. But I still love <laughs> them for that. Um, you know, it was, yeah. So those are kind of the 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 major rules kind of over all of marathon swimming. You had a 12-person crew, mm -hmm. and then there was two officials. Correct. The Federation uh, employs two people to be on the boat, and they take shifts, and they're essentially just making sure that nobody's, you know, going in front of you for pace swimming. Your kayakers aren't, you know, touching you. You're not leaning onto the kayak because you can't touch anything for that whole time. They also make sure you start appropriately. So in order to um, start, you have to go on the shore, raise both of your hands, take your hands down, and then you enter the water. Same when you exit the water, you have to find dry sand, which I find so comical because I'm like, I just swam 23 miles and here I am looking for dry sand on a beach, I'm like waddling up the beach and you have to turn around and raise your hands in the air, which is also funny because I could barely do it. My, I'm like at a 90 degree angle and then they're, you know, stop my time. Um, but they just make sure that ever, all of the rules are followed so that you have a official swim. Mm -hmm. So take us to, take us to the boat ride over. Okay. Oh, everyone got seasick. I think it's something that we really underestimated with the crossing itself is the fact that you go over on a boat, so you start at night, you start at 11 p.m. So you, we met at the um, San Pedro Harbor. Um, our boat was called the Bottom Scratcher and the crew was incredible. If anyone's ever thinking about doing Catalina, I could not recommend them more. They were phenomenal. Um, and so you get there, they brief you on, you know, safety, everything like that. Then they're okay, it's about a two hour ride over to the, uh, to Catalina. We'll leave around eight o'clock. Um, and so, you know, you're going and you're like, okay. And then you start getting to the middle of the channel and it is rocky. And I just don't think anyone, uh, estimated how rocky it was going to be going over there. So most people were just completely seasick by the time we got to the over, over there. And we had Dramamine and we had a bunch of anti-nauseous medicine, but it just was not enough. And so I'm sitting up at the top cause the top was a little bit better, watching the lights fade away from mainland and being like, wow, this is really far and I'm really sick. And this is going to be a really long day. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, where were you mentally 
were you were you finding that the mind was like in the future like oh my god I'm gonna swim through this how I, I really tried to stop that because you get going on that and I was like okay the lights are you know they're fading I've expected that okay they're really fading I'm expecting that okay they've disappeared how much further do we have and they're like oh we're about halfway and you're like okay halfway perfect so you're just getting into the Pacific Ocean in the dead of night, pitch dark. So, so dark out there. And that first hour you swim alone. First hour I swim alone. I start alone. Yeah. Can you take us to that, to that moment when you're on the boat or you're on, you start on the shore, right? Yeah. You start on the boat. They, um, so you can wear, so you can't wear a wetsuit, but what you can do is put Vaseline or lanolin on you, which is kind of a, helps a barrier, at least in the beginning until it kind of wears off. So, um, we get there a little bit early at like 1030 and I, I asked the officials, I'm like, can we just wait a little bit so that maybe I'm not so nauseous? I'm just, I'm so nauseous right now. I'm just dry heaving and to start a race like this, I'm just like, okay, can we wait a little bit? And they're like, yeah, we can, we can wait about 15 minutes. So, okay. So then I start putting on my, my lanolin, get in my suit, which I elected to wear, um, more of like an open water competitive suit instead of a regular swimsuit. Uh, it kept me a little bit warmer and I just liked the way that it moved a little bit more. So they, um, put, you know, Vaseline all over me. They put the lights on my, um, swimsuit. So you have to wear lights. That's another thing is everyone in the water has to wear lights. So I had a light on the back of my head on my cap. And then I also had a light, um, kind of like in my swimsuit. So they're able to see me. So then I was just sitting there and I was like, okay, this is going to happen. I'm going to be okay. It's going to be what it is. And so, um, yeah, you, they, uh, allow you to jump in the water. Matt was my first kayaker. You swim to shore and they shine this light out. It's so dark out there. I can't even describe it. And this little light. And I said, where am I swimming? And they said, where the light is. And I said, okay. And they're like, and don't hit the lane. Li like there's a buoy line. Don't hit that. Cause it's pretty sharp and we don't want you to cut your neck. Okay. So I'm going to swim to that beach over there with the little light. And then I go, mm -hmm. and he goes, okay. And he goes, oh, and pick up a rock. I said, pick up a rock. And he goes, yeah, it's like tradition. I said, okay, what do I do with the rock? Once I pick it up, he's like, put it in your swimsuit. I was like, I'm going to haul this little rock for 23 miles. He goes, that's what everyone does. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that too. So then you, and you're not thinking, I asked them before, I said, is it deep here? And he goes, yeah, the boat's here. You can jump off. And I, okay. So I jump off and then you, you know, swim to shore, which feels long. And you're like, it's not, it's 50 yards. You're fine. Then you swim up and you crawl up on the beach and you just kind of wait for them to give you the, the go ahead to start. So, yeah. So, all right. So you're on the beach, you're waiting. What, like, get, Paint the picture for us. You're just there yeah. looking back out at, at so, the boat, right? It's dark. It's so, it, it is so dark out there in Catalina. And you start um, just, I think, uh, what's that, north of Twin Harbors, south of Two Harbors at this little like YMCA camp ground. Um, and so I was actually standing on the beach and all of a sudden these girls who had gone gotten up to go to the restroom were there and they're like, you're going to do great. We wish you good luck. They're all cheering for me. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Thank goodness. I kind of needed that. Just like a little kind of, Hey, get out of your head for a second and realize that you're standing on a beach about to swim 23 miles to mainland. Like you're here, like all of your worries that you've been worried about. Am I going to be sick? Am I going to be injured? Is all of my crew going to show up? You know, Matt's, Matt's dad, I don't really want to talk too much about, about that, but we had a contingency plan that his dad uh, might be in the hospital and he was no, not going to be there with me. So I might have, you know, had another crew chief and, you know, my number one, Matt's my person. So I was just mentally like, he's here with you. Like you got, you know, you're, you got your A team. You just need to go out there and just start it. And you kind of feel a hesitation of, okay, when I put my arms up, when I put them down, it's like, we're starting this thing. I'm like, okay, one, two, three, let's go. Hands go up. Arms go down and then you just go off into the water and you're like, next time I touch shore, it's going to be Palos Verdes tomorrow morning. We've all, so, so many athletes listen to this podcast and we've all had those first moments in a race, you know, that might, that might go either way. I've certainly had the, oh my God, what am I doing? Did you have any of those? The first 50 yards, I was like, look for the buoys so you don't slice your neck open. That was like all I could think about. 
And once I hit past the, <laughs> past the little buoy line, I was like, okay, just swim. Like, that's all you have to do. You just swim. Everyone else takes care of everything else. Just swim. Everyone always talks about the bioluminescence that are out there in Catalina that you see at night. And they were incredible. Every time I put my arm in the water and stroke through, it was this spark of yellow that was just unbelievable. So I was kind of captivated just by nature's beauty and the fact that I would just look over and just see stars that I haven't seen in so long. And then I would look down at, you know, the ocean and it would just be the spark of yellow, almost like a firework that was just kind of celebrating the start of this. And so I just kind of rode that really excited emotion for a little bit until I just got pummeled by some waves that or by a, the current that kind of started to hit me about know, an hour into it. So currents are one of the things that are like the top five challenges about this, this channel crossing. So what was that like? Cause there's, there's no way you can prepare for that no, unless, and I, until you're in it. And I knew it was funny when I was coming over, I, the, the, observers were talking and there were two gentlemen and they were great and um kind of the head observer Dan he was just kind of chatting with me and you know how are you doing how are you feeling and I said well this is a lot longer than a 50 yard that I'm used to doing but that's okay um and he's like and the other gentleman he was a little bit more um he was kind of he was a funny guy he goes we're gonna have a lot of fun out there tonight and I said what do you mean he's like just gonna be it's gonna be a little rocky out there and I said okay and then I was just like, it is what it is. You show up on race day. Sometimes there's great conditions. Sometimes there's not. And that's just the way the cards fall. But nothing could have really prepared me for what I encountered really the first 12 miles. The, the water just moves differently out there. It's just in the middle of the ocean. It has so much more kind of force behind it. And the water's turbulent all the way around. It's, it just doesn't move the same as it does near shore. The way it was described to me, and it was like described with two arms, like one arm was way up in the air, and it was like, there was the kayaker. I was talking to Dea the other day, and then she was like, and then the arm way down below, she's like, and then there was Sabrina, and then it would switch. So yeah, were, the, did, did you, were you experiencing during this crossing, in the middle of the night, during these rough conditions, were you experiencing fear? Oh, yeah, I was just trying to think. Just don't think, just don't fixate on it was my, was my thing. I think a lot of endurance uh, athletes get something in their head and then they just fixate it, fix it. And for me, a lot of my training was not fixating on the cold because I would just latch onto that and then it would just tear me to, to the ground. Be like, oh, I'm so cold. I can't continue. I'm so, I'm shaking. I'm numb. So I was just like, just don't think about it. You're just going to get through it and you're just going to try to swim and that's what you're going to do. But I got, I think about two hours in and I told Matt, I said, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. This is so rough and I feel like I'm not making any progress. I, I don't know if this is going to happen. All right. I'm handing the mic over to Matt. What was that moment like? Because you're out there with her, you're her first line of defense and she's telling you she doesn't think she can do it. So she's skipping over the fact that at a little less than an hour, she said the same thing, and I basically got mad at her because I was like, screw you. We all came out here to watch this happen. We've all watched you swim for like seven hours in training. You're an hour in. If you, if you can't make it after like nine hours or something like that, that's a different factor. If you quit now, you chose to quit. And, so, and I told her that, and I, I was very clear with her because as we've had many just conversations, like, I was there to, to help her finish, not help her enjoy it necessarily. And like, you know, we had many discussions about how we were probably going to hate each other through that period. And I think that, that she probably hated me a little bit during that period. And I know I sure didn't like her attitude, so it was fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, at about two hours in, it was still, look, the first six hours of the swim was probably the most choppy. Um, and at about two hours in, I just took the different approach of like, let's just talk in 15 minutes. Let's just talk in 15 minutes. And, and, and my goal in that was basically don't chop, don't, don't chop it up by a mile. Don't chop it up by an hour. Chop it up by 15 minutes. Just get to the next feed cycle. And um, that seemed to, to resonate pretty well. Obviously, she can, she can tell you what was going on in her head, but that seemed to work. 
and that's basically how I was thinking sitting in the kayak. So I, I thought, you know, it would work and it seemed to work. So that was, that was the game plan. We took. Yeah. It was it, swimming. There's just so many factors in the ocean at that time of, of night. I, it was so, I mean, I, it was so choppy. The, the kayak would be, like I said, would be up and then I would be down. And, and then I had a pace swimmer with me, my really good friend, CW, who was, um, former professional triathlete. And so I knew he was going to be really strong. So I put him in the beginning so he could kind of set me off for a faster pace. Um, he actually wore like his GPS watch with tracking on it. Cause he was like, I was concerned that if I got disconnected from you, like we were both going to be gone. Cause the sea was just so rough. I mean, it was, Every time I took a breath, I couldn't, you know, couldn't get a breath or you just, you know, slap against the waves. And I was just really felt like I was just making no progress. And we're not talking for an hour time. We're talking about for six hours. And so I was just like, you know, just then my thing was just just get to daytime because daytime is going to be so much easier because the nighttime. Another couple of factors that I didn't really think about while swimming at night was all of the lights during my training, I, I had lights on me and the kayak had lights during training, but that was it. But during the crossing, the boat has a lot of lights on it. Um, I have a light on me and then the kayak has a string of different color lights. Well, switching between those cause I bilateral breathe was making me so nauseous, just all of the lights. And so I was just, Oh, I can't wait till the daytime because just looking at all these brightly colored lights, I felt like I was on a Ferris, like a Ferris wheel, just all the different lights. Um, so I was like, just, just make it to morning and it's going to be better in the morning. I promise. So I just kind of kept focusing on, on that. Did you have concerns about marine life and did you take any precautions? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of the unspoken rule. So all of my crew was like trying to ask the officials when I was going over about like, what's the possibility of sharks? Like nobody's talking about this. It's kind of like the elephant in the room. Um, I wasn't, too concerned with it. I I've lived here my whole life, swam in the ocean and I've never seen a shark here. I know it's a major concern for most people, but it, it wasn't really, I, I was, if that was my time to go, that was my time to go. But I, the really thing that kind of got me was one, one moment I remember looking down and it's so dark out there. I, I can't even describe the color of the ocean that far out. It's like the darkest deep blue you've ever seen. I thought, I wonder how far down it is. And then I was like, doesn't matter 10 feet or 200 feet. I can't touch the ground and that doesn't matter. So just keep on swimming. So anytime I had kind of a fear of anything like that, I'm just like, don't even worry about it. It doesn't matter. So you just need to keep swimming. So you didn't use any like shark bands or anything like that. Did anybody on your crew do that? Uh, no, not to my knowledge. That's the, good. You guys didn't have any shark consciousness. That's good stuff. Yeah. The boat had sonar and they say the boat makes kind of loud noises. And so, but honestly, when I was out there and I mean, you're out there and you can't see anything, you can't see shore, you can't see Catalina, nothing to the right, left behind you. You realize how vast that ocean is. And I was like, statistically, I, I work with numbers a lot. So I'm like, statistically, that would be really hard for one to find me at this, con you know? So I, I felt honestly a little bit better when I was out there kind of swimming. I was like, it's so low of a probability. I'm okay. Did you have any mantras or anything to keep you in the zone, basically? Because I know Matt, people are checking in with you every 15 minutes, but something's got to get in your mind, a song, maybe some word, maybe it was a song or, yeah, what, what was going on upstairs? If anyone knows me, they know that I love Taylor Swift, um, like with all my heart. Uh, and so I would, how I kind of, marathon swimming is so different as far as sensory is concerned because you, I wear earplugs, so I can't see I can't hear anything really very everything's very muted my uh kayakers used lights to communicate with me um and you know like flashing of flags things like that because I can't hear anything and most of the time you're really looking at nothing it's just ocean there's nothing to really even look at so I do in my head I sing a lot um I do like albums at a time and I pick genres at a time so I'm like oh I'm gonna you know, sing this entire Taylor Swift album. And then I literally just sing song by song by song. And then I go, okay, now I'm going to do a country album. And I pick a country album and I just sing one and two, but I don't do any critical thinking because then I get, I, I stop losing my like stroke and thinking about my stroke and thinking about what I'm doing. So I don't, I purposely don't do any problem solving. I don't think about like, how should I lay out to you one for, for Indian Wells? Like, Hmm. I wonder what the post-athlete food should be. Or, you know, Oh, I wonder how the 2020 Cervellas are going. It just like, no, just swim, sing your songs, have fun, 
continue swimming. Yeah, and that's all you had to do. You just had to keep swimming. Tell me what first light was like. The the sunrise out there, we had about one hour of no fog, which was something that is just condition on top of condition. But uh, it was the most like radiant blue I've ever seen. I mean, you're out there, you're like 10, really, you're like halfway. So you're 10 miles from um, from land. You can't see in either direction, but it's like the bluest blue. And it was like the most incredible sunrise. And I just remember being like, oh my God, it's there. Like the, it's there. Like you made it through the night. And that's, it was just kind of this huge sigh of like, okay, like this is it. Your son, you said they can't wait till sunrise. This is sunrise. Now what do we do? Where do we go? How did things change once the sun came up? Did the ocean calm? Like the ocean did get a little bit, a little bit calmer. And I had a really rough night. I was, I was literally throwing up the entire swim, the whole Catalina crossing. I was dry heaving because of the seas were so, so rough. So by that point I was six hours in and really only probably had taken in half my nutrition. Um, so when the sun came up, it was like, okay, now, you know, the crew's a little bit more awake. We can problem solve to figure out what I need to be taking in because I'm so far behind in my nutrition, it's going to start catching up to me eventually. So it was just kind of like, okay, sigh of relief. This is what it's going to be. I can't see shore, but soon I'll be able to see shore. And then we got the densest fog that came in and I just swam with the fog for the next six hours. And it was just the total mind kind of just sunk down in me. And I'm like, I can't see anything anymore. I can't see shore. I've been swimming for another four hours. Everyone keeps telling me I'm getting closer. There's no mile markers. You don't swim with a clock. You have no perception of time. I was I was really just mentally starting to, to lose it at that point. About hour, I would say probably eight, eight and a half. And you still had like five to go. Matt just made a face. Tell us about the mentally crumbling moment, Matt. Started crumbling a lot earlier than that. Um, well, other than you know, hour two. Yeah. No, the sun rose at at about six o'clock, so that's like seven hours in, and and the the tone of the whole event I think changed a lot for the positive when the sun came up, or or the the sky the the, the sky got lighter essentially, but we couldn't see anything even from the boat uh, in terms of shore, so it was kind of a trip for that second half to know that the the sun was up, but we we you were trusting the boat that it was going the right direction, but you really had no frame of reference. Um, and that really ate into her, um, we'll call it what it is, sanity. Um, she, she had some, some pretty sweet meltdowns in terms of like, she just essentially lost trust. And, and it was, it was, uh, it was the, the fatigue talking and, and things like that. Not, not conscious Sabrina, but like, the, the fatigue, I think, kind of overtook her and, and she would, like, basically, like, try to fight us in terms of, like, I'm not going the right direction. Like, you're misleading me. You're not taking care of me. And so not only were we taking care of her, but we were also convincing her that we were taking care of her. And um, all things that we were kind of, like, expecting, so to speak, um, you really can only train for so much because that was that never happened in the training swims. Um, but, uh, definitely, I think we really underestimated the, the night to morning, uh, effects that that would have on, on her. And, and so, you know, among many things that we underestimated, I think that was probably one of the biggest ones and, uh, created probably the best stories, but, but some of the best challenges or biggest challenges. How does that, as, as her loved one, how does that make you feel like you're, you're watching this? Does it, how does it, are you able to separate the the journey that you're on versus what your heart is telling you, like you just want to save her. No, I, I, uh, I love Sabrina with my whole heart, but I also was very okay being, uh, essentially a cold and calculated, uh, helper. I, I had no, because watching her, her, her go, the reality is while she felt like she was going backwards and she felt like she was going in the wrong direction, like I was seeing the the truth and seeing her stroke be the same stroke I've seen for the last eight years when we literally met at a pool. Like I, I know that stroke probably better than I know my own. And, and it was great. And there was even a period where one of the things as the crew, you, you, you don't tell her, 
you don't tell them distance. You don't tell them time. You don't tell them time of day. You don't tell them that any of those kind of those numbers, because to her point, like they just need to get in their stroke and go for it. Um, but there was a point where she was really starting to eat at herself mentally. And one of her pace swimmers got out, Eric, um, and, uh, he was like, we swam like one forties that whole time. And I was like, I feel like she needs to know that because that's, that is, that's, and it was like, we were like eight hours in at that point. So we kind of all huddled up and, and, uh, the coaches and myself and, and Lily, who was providing all the nutrition. And we basically just decided like, she needs to know that fact because she needs to be reminded, uh, that she's doing really, really well. And, um, and I think that that had a really positive effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you just, there's no, there's no distance. Like you can't tell how fast you're going. So in a pool, you're, you know, every lap you're like, okay, I've covered 25 yards and then come back 50. And so you can kind of calculate how fast you're going, but out there, there's no, there's no mile markers. There's no change of distance. I can't tell if I'm going forwards, backwards in a circle. I've no frame of reference on anything. So you go off your stroke rate, but then you kind of are like, well, I don't really know how far I'm going with this stroke rate. So you feel just really disoriented like the whole time. So once I heard that from my pace swimmer, I was like, okay, I'm at least going in, you know, that way. And the first six miles just battling or the first 12 uh, miles battling that kind of really rough sea really took a toll on my power shoulder. So I'm really kind of relatively balanced as far as my shoulder strength is concerned, but my left is my, is my dominant. And I could feel I was having some pretty intense kind of shoulder pain by that point. And I was like, okay, you know, how kind of, I wanted to know how much further, you know, is this going to be something that I'm going to be able to get out? Cause if I have 10 more miles, I don't know if the shoulder is going to hold up for another 10 miles. So yeah. And the mind just really messes with you when it doesn't have any certainty, right? Cause it didn't really matter. All it mattered was, was that shoulder going to hold up for that stroke? You, right. Exactly. You just had to keep swimming. I mean, at one point in time, the boat, you just, you know, like Matt was talking about, kind of like lose, lose faith a little bit. I could have sworn the boat was going in a circle. I was like, we're not getting closer to shore. We're going in a circle. I, Matt's like, I promise you we're going in a straight line. I can guarantee it. We're going towards shore. The shore is there. You just have to, you know, but you've been swimming for nine, 10 hours and everything still looks the same. It's like you're caught in this weird time vortex where you're like, everyone says I'm moving forward, but I've had the exact same view for the last 10 hours and I still can't see shore. And they're like, you're, you know, you're three miles away. And I was like, are you sure I'm just three miles away? And I, I had another complete kind of moment. Everyone has those moments in their race. They're like your defining moments, you know? And so I had another like defining moment. I would say, you know, two and a half to go or something like that. Matt and I, and my, um, one of my pace swimmers uh, coach, Rendy, we had a, a really fun moment out there with a, with a buttercup. Can you tell us about that defining moment? Do you want to? <laughs> You're just teasing us with it. Oh, Matt's all about the defining moment. <laughs> uh, it was a, a defining moment in the funny story. It, so I guess there's another tradition at two miles to go. Um, it's actually two nautical miles, not two regular miles, which for those of you that don't know, nautical miles are longer than regular miles, which we also just went ahead and didn't tell Sabrina. Um, you're, you give them a piece of chocolate or in this case, we gave her a little buttercup thing. And, uh, and I, I wanted, I was the one to give it to her and, um, she had just had a, a feeding like five minutes before. So I, I waved the little wand thing that we were supposed to use to get her to come to the kayak and I waved it and she starts immediately yelling at me. I just had a feeding. I don't need, I just had like, that was how it started. And I was like, just, just come here, just come here. And she's like, what do you want? Like we're, we're two miles left. So call it like a little over an hour left. Uh, yeah. And she comes over and I give her the chocolate and I was like, this symbolizes that you only have two miles left to go. And she said, I still have two miles <laughs> and just is, is bawling, crying. Like she's trying to eat this thing and, and, and crying and she drops it in the water and, and she I tries just, to I just find watch it yeah. fall to the bottom of the ocean. My she's little, trying to I find just... it in the water. Like, and so her pace was just like, just let it go. So then we got her going again and it was fine after that, but it was just like, she, that was, I would say the lowest, if not close, 
close to the lowest moment that probably the lowest moment was she had like 500 meters to go and she stops swimming and goes, I'm feeling hypothermic. And I said, I don't care. Finish the swim. <laughs> so. I mean, you just, you just, you just get so tired out there that you're like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can do five, you know, that doubt kind of creeps in and I've try to keep it away the whole time. And by this point you're, you're cold. So like I've, you know, dealt with the night and the day and then you really kind of get about three miles outside of Palos Verdes and the temperature drops pretty far below. So in the middle of the channel, it's actually pretty warm. It's like almost since the seventies and you're like, wow, this is great. This feels really warm. And then you get about three miles out and it dips to like 66 and you're like, wow, that's really cold. And by that point, you're not moving that fast. So I started getting really cold. And then you just kind of start fixating on how cold you are. And I was like, oh, you know, my hair out on my arms are standing up and I'm starting to get really shaky. And I can feel my stroke kind of get shaky because I'm, you know, so cold that I'm no longer able to kind of pull the water. And, you know, Matt's like, you're getting really close a mile. I, I can see people on shore. I can I can hear people screaming and people, I could hear people yelling for me, but I still couldn't see the shore because it was so foggy. I couldn't see the shore until I was probably 500 yards. And I saw kind of, I'm like, oh my gosh, there it is. Like, finally, I've waited so long to see this shore and it's finally here. Thank God. <laughs> and then your pace swimmers jumped in for the last part, but they were behind you, right? So Haley, I think, got a great, she got a great video. Um, that was We're all so grateful for that because we were able to see this really precious moment of you coming out of the water and, and finishing this. But you can see your pace swimmers, but they're behind you. You were maybe about 50 yards in front of them. Yeah, so it's up to the officials whether or not they kind of allow you to, to do that. And so my, pay, my officials, they were great. And they're like, you know, if you want to share this moment with your crew, they totally can. They have to stay about, you know, 10 yards behind you just so it's apparent that they're not aiding you in any way. Um, and I was like, yeah, I would love to have, I mean, these people have been on a boat. They've trained with me over the last eight months. They've gone out, you know, talking about just training real quick for these massive swims. I'd have to logistically train, you know, over the weekend. Okay, guys, I need five pace swimmers on this Sunday. We're starting at 6 p.m., going to 11 p.m. Anyone able to help kayak, help you know, pace swim, you know, all of the, I mean, these people have been with me for eight months helping me along this journey. Like I want them to share this moment with me. It's not just my moment, it's our moment. Um, and so I, you know, swimming, I had, um, Matt on one of the kayaks and then my medical lead alley on the other one in case for some reason I, you know, got out and needed some assistance. And then a lot of my pace swimmers, Dea was also there. Um, Rendy was there and then a bunch of my other pace swimmers kind of swam in with me. And I remember, swimming in and seeing the bottom of the of the ocean for the first time and I was like oh my gosh oh my gosh it's here and so naturally you just put your feet down of course it's like six feet still I was like oh okay keep on swimming um and so I swim a little bit more and then you can you know you're like oh my gosh I can actually see it and you put your feet down and your feet hit the hit the sand and I was just just overcome with emotion and you're you know, you, you're the time still click kicking. So you're like, Oh God, run up shore. So you see me kind of shuffling up shore, looking for dry sand. And then I turn around and I'm just, my hands are on my knees and I'm just like, I, my, you know, my hands on my face. And I was like, I did it. Like, that's all that I did it. I was just blown away. Yeah. I think we're all pretty bullet. Like, does anybody else I have chills all over my body right now? That is just, it's such an epic accomplishment. And you know, what I like to say about these things is it's not that what you did was uh, a fluke or you got lucky. You're just serving as the example for all of us once again to learn the lesson that anything is possible. I mean, you put your mind to it and you want it bad enough. And I, I mean, I, I swim because I, I love it. I love swimming. It means like the world to me. I have a tattoo on my side of um, an ocean. It has a wave on it, and it actually has the coordinate points of um, my mom, who we lost in 2012. So anytime I'm out there swimming in the ocean, I just say, like, I'm with her. So I was like, this is just 12 hours with your mom. You haven't, you know, had that in eight years. Just go out and enjoy it. And I, I battled from the beginning of that event, and I think if it didn't, if it wasn't so hard, I don't think I would have held it so close to me because I, it was hard the entire time. But once you finally get there and you're like, 
you did it. Like, you did it. So after the event, like, what has kind of resonated with you? Or what have you learned? What have you learned about yourself? That's what I want to ask. What have you learned? Yeah, the, the crossing taught me a lot about, a lot about myself. People, you know, coming from an Ironman background, Ironman taught me a lot about myself too, but nothing to the extent of what this crossing has. Just all the variables that I have shied away with for so long dealing with the cold that I'm not really good about dealing with trying to, you know, gain weight and be, you know, worry about that. I took that head on. I think I just learned that if you want it bad enough and you're willing to give up, you know, everything that you really possibly can to try it, at least give yourself the chance. If you fail, you at least tried. But I was like, I think if I give it my all, I don't think I'm going to fail at this. But I just gave it a ran for its money. And on that day, you know, August was at 23rd, I was able to complete the crossing. I guess the next question is, there's six more big crossings to go after. Is that even, is that even? <laughs> As Matt literally puts his head in his hands. I don't know what's next. I think for me, it's always been what's next. You know, like I, I live for that. I'm very like intrinsically motivated and always what's next, what's bigger, what's better. And that's how I, after, you know, college racing for triathlon, it was like, oh, what's next? Okay. Half Ironman. Okay, cool. What's after that? Okay. A full Ironman. Okay. Well, I want to go to Kona. Okay. You qualify for Kona. Okay. I'm going to race Kona. Okay. Race Kona. Okay, what's next? Oh, the crossing. And then you do the crossing and then you're like, what's next? And I'm kind of reveling in the fact that my body's like, it's okay right now. Like, just enjoy it. And so I'm kind of excited about this probably brief period of time where I'm like, I'm okay not knowing what's next. But I don't think that I'm going to get out of the marathon swimming world. I think it's very intriguing. And they say the crossing kind of pulls you back in and it's kind of like, what's next? And so... I'm not really sure. I'm going to let my body rest a little bit and kind of regroup and get my life back in kind of the normal swing of things. But I, I don't think I'm going to exit the marathon swimming world anytime soon. And for all our listeners out there, what's, what do you want someone to walk away with when they listen to this? I think we're so much more powerful mentally than we really give ourselves credit for. And if you truly believe that you can do something, I really believe that there's very little that the human mind can actually do. I always go back to somebody once told me those who believe that they can and those who believe that they can't are both usually always right. So if you believe that you can do it, there's a good chance you can do it if you want it bad enough. So even if you stumble, fall down, have a little bit of a roadblock, it doesn't mean that you're going forward. Progress doesn't always have to be linear, but you're still going in the right direction. And for me, that was all that I really wanted to do, was just keep going forward, trying my best. Let's spend a few minutes totally switching gears. You are the race director for Ironman La Quinta. 70.3 in December. Last year was first year event, sold out. I mean, the we were there. The venue's amazing. I know there was a little bit of question if it was going to come back, but it's on for yeah. sure. Yeah. So what are you excited about being second year race director for this race? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the second year for this event. I think with any first year event, um, a lot of it's a trial run. You think this is going to work out. This looks great on paper. And then once you get out there, you say, oh, you know what? These are some things that we're going to modify. And I think we ran into a couple of those last year. So I'm really excited now. I know the terrain. I know the area. I think I know what's you know going to be best. We have a lot of really great changes coming in year two that I think are just going to be a lot better for the athletes as well as the spectators. So I'm kind of just excited to be like, let's roll out an even bigger and better event. Like I, this is my, you know, my baby. And so I'm like, let's, let's do it. Nice. Any advice for people who are concerned about water temperatures? <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> I always say whenever somebody asks me, I, I did a live, live Facebook feed right before Indian Wells. And I think I went back and counted. I think there was like 40 or 50 comments about water temperature. And I'm like, you guys are really complaining to the wrong race director on this one. <laughs> I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be upfront with them. You know, you guys get a wetsuit. That's, that's a joy. Like be thankful for that. Cold showers work great. 
Um, you know, I mean, I feel like it's going to be, you have, you know, eight months to, to drain for something like that. Gain so. some weight, drink some insure. They sell it by, they sell it in bulk. Yeah, they sell it in bulk. <laughs> I mean, I'm, they, the, you know, probably the most callous race director on the water temperature. So if they're like, are we swimming? And I was like, well, is it legal to swim? Then yeah, we're swimming. It's the best part of the three. Get your wetsuit on. And I would say that swim venue is, it's breathtaking. Oh, it's beautiful. It's fresh water, which is a whole no- you don't deal with salt water and after spending 12 hours in salt water the they weird get to things keep that, their taste buds the weird thing that happens to you yeah i mean it's pristine there's no tides there's no currents it's it can be chilly it's also very shallow so you know if people are a little bit concerned just hug the outside and if you get into trouble stand up you know i think a lot of people it's just kind of a safety it's a really good beginner's race the bike course is so flat we made the turns a little bit less turns so people can carry their momentum better. The run course is really fun um, through the golf course and the facilities just at Indian Wells Tennis Garden are world class. I mean, you walk into the bathrooms, have marble on them. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, I almost feel like I want to put porta potties in there so athletes feel, you know, comfortable. They're used to that. <laughs> Awesome. Sabrina, thank you so much. Matt, thank you for chiming in. I think your input was um, pretty important. And to our audience, you guys are amazing. Thank you for coming out on Friday night and thank you guys allowing for having Sabrina me. to tell this story. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And the whole village around this, I my 12 crew members, and then we don't, you know, mention my massage therapist that worked on me every week. You know, I went to yoga twice a week. Dea did strength and conditioning twice a week. I had a, you know, a swim coach look at my stroke and modify it just for open water swimming. I mean, it really, there's probably 50 or so people that assisted just in this one event for me, which is really special that somebody would take so much time to make sure that I could accomplish my, my dream. Mm-hmm.